Hi, I'm Mara Webster with Increative Company, and I'm so thrilled today to be joined by the wonderful Boyd Holbrook to talk all about his current projects, the movie Vengeance, as well as the Netflix series, The Sandman. And starting with The Sandman, I wanted to talk a little bit about your character development, because I always think it's such an interesting journey to take a character that is kind of of another world and of another space, but yet the journey of kind of figuring out the mentality is still very similar in a lot of ways. And, And I've heard you mention that with the Corinthian, obviously, he's a huge outsider and someone who's kind of never really fit into spaces around himself. And I was interested if if something like that was a really great inroad for finding the emotional landscape and starting to figure out how you wanted to play him or where the first kind of roads into his emotional complexities were for you. Yeah, well, in the, in the Sandman, the dollhouse, I believe, is the first issue and the only issue uh, that the Corinthian is in. And so... You know, when I knew this was going to be, you know, 10 episodes, um, there was a lot of that. It's like, well, really, what is this guy? And uh, I think that's really the greatest part about acting that I enjoy is that you get to psychologically break these people down. Um, because on first interpretation, this, uh, this guy is the the creation of your worst nightmare in the dreaming world and in the waking world, he is this patron of saints to remove serial killers. So how does he become all that? Uh, he's not a character that I found that would do a home intrusion. It would be more of you welcomed him into your home and that was your, your you know, fatal mistake. Uh, and a person who has been around for such a long time has really taken all the low-hanging fruit so he's become a bit of a connoisseur over time so all those things are informing you know what does this guy wear what, you know he's he's become a connoisseur he's a sommelier like you know he's really after the finer things in life because he's gone through all that uh, and that informs, you know, speech and sophistication and how he carries himself. Um, so, yeah, really a lot of a deep well just to kind of keep going back to and try to figure out this character. And, and you're mentioning there, obviously, he's a character who has been alive for such an extensive amount of time. And did that change at all the way that you were thinking about your character's backstory and, and history in terms of the, mm-hmm. the amount of detail that you wanted to go into? Or was it more just thinking about what would be certain influential moments in his life regardless? Yeah, I think the just the time span of, of, of that duration that he's been around, he's seen it. He's he's seen it all, done it all. So with that is a sort of, you know, a sense of humor that he can play with people. Um, everything's not so serious with him. Um, he has a sense of humor along with, with all of the, the things that he's seen. So all that just really informed him um, rather than, you know, uh, playing one note the whole time. That's a, that's a big, and you were bringing up before as well that one of the aspects as well is obviously how he speaks and there's such a deliberate delivery in every word it feels like is so kind of meticulously thought out for him um what was that journey of really figuring out the voice of this character and the specific delivery that you wanted for the dialogue yeah really good writing has uh phrasing in it usually you can 
not every character sounds the same. There's a different phrasing in how the clip and the cadence comes out. And I like to have a lot of time. I would love to have you know many much more time than you usually get, but it's because you literally have to go through space and time to to something to go from being foreign to existing. It's just existing, and I am it. I'm not trying to be it. Um, so the longer you can have, the more time you have to see that and to see the hidden language uh, that's on the page. Um, yeah, and I'm, I, you know, I'm from Kentucky, so voice is a big thing for me, not because I'm from Kentucky, but just because of, um, I've had so much, done so much voice work in school that I, I just now always start with how does this character sound and you know all the things we spoke about just now really inform that the, the intellect of the character where they're from all that um so yeah the the voice really for me is kind of root one and then breaking down why they operate how they are conditioned what makes them that way how they have their point of view because that's the reason why I'm going to do it. I want to find out someone else's point of view and take that on as mine. And with with that sense of physicality in the character as well, because again, it's every every movement is very meticulous as well with this character, and it feels like he's someone who's trying not to give too much of himself away to anyone. Like there's a lot of mystique and mystery in any interactions for the first time. Um, is that something where you play around with the physicality of a character and kind of explore that before you go into filming, or is a lot of that discovery once you're filming scenes in in the character? Yeah, I think every actor would like. To say, yeah, I figured it all out before we got there. Yeah, I really do. I really try to. But there, you know, you have to, to to perform and get up and do this. So you're going to be learning things along the way of of how you're you're just going to get these sort of clues throughout a uh, scene and throughout the experience. Um, and I, the glasses really became like wearing a mask. Uh, for me, it was, it was simple and, and um, just very, very, uh, uh, it really had a big impact, I could tell, uh, because people, you you know people can't read you. Um, so, yeah, I really relied on that sort of just small trans, transformative thing. Right. And, and one of the initial hesitations in taking the role was that idea of, of a role where you don't have the use of your eyes, because that's so much something that you utilize as an actor. Mm -hmm. And even just in terms of the way that you interact with scene partners, that's a huge connective point as well. Um, you know, and, and after you talked to Alan Heinberg, the showrunner, how did you kind of figure out the approach and how you were going to go into it and having to think about the rest of your face and the rest of your body in a very different way and having to lean on that expressively in a way that you may not have if you'd had the use of your full face in your eyes. I went through all that. Yeah. Um, that was a big hang up for me to, to, um, to, to do it was the conversations with Alan. It was, I don't know, but he doesn't have any eyes. So how is this going to work? Um, because, you know, it's that old saying, you know, soul is in the eyes, and it is. So um, he he reassured me, but hey, that other role you played, you were wearing glasses and that, it seemed to work pretty well. Um, 
And what I thought was really going to be a hindrance uh, became almost like a, a one-up power that I had of that sort of became like a mask behind the mask uh, really just allowed me to flow. Um, and I, it, I did go through, well, maybe I should talk with my mouth. <laughs> go through all these things in the beginning. And, um, you know, just through rehearsal time, uh, it starts becoming just second nature. And when it comes to, you know, when we first see violence enacted in a moment during the episode with the serial convention, um, did you and Alan talk about what that would look like as well? Because again, it's it's kind of very slow and methodical. It's not something where he goes straight in with aggression, which I thought was such a such an interesting trait that really matches the personality and persona that you've built for the character up to that point. Yeah, that's something that uh, terminology I learned along the way researching this is that there's um, process killing and then the act like getting adrenaline high from doing something like that to uh, maybe more like a Jeffrey Dahmer type where it's like, I'm going to keep this person because it's giving me some sort of life force. Um, so the, the setup, the, the stalking, the prey uh, is, is all really a part of it, but it has to be done so well. There's a step-by-step -step process uh, to it for it to be the ultimate delayed gratification. So again, going back to that refined um, character. And that episode's also really great in the fact that we then get to see your character in a completely different environment where he's there as a keynote speaker. He's kind of lauded by this community. And, you know, so there's this kind of fandom around him when he moves around the space and walks into a room. And for you, what was the impact that that has, has on him? You know, going back to what you were talking about right at the beginning of he's always an outsider, but this is a space where he's actually not and everybody's revering him. Mm, yeah, no, I just got a little chilly. It's, it's that thing of being idolized and, and uh, welcomed when you've been sort of an outcast for so long. Um, just that fulfillment of finally, somebody understands what I've been talking about. Um, and it's a really, it's a really clever way that they've done um, to sort of take the Corinthians arc and um, sort of finally push it into that light and you get to see all those characters at the convention. It's just really, really cool. It is. And, you know, one of the trajectories with him as a character as well is, is that idea that, you know, he can't be in the waking world forever. There's, there's an end date to it. Um, and so you're playing this character who has this idea of this life that he wants, but it's never fully tangible to him. And so how did that create some of the emotional landscape for him for you? Yeah. I felt the same way. There's a ticking clock over my head that I'm eventually going to have to meet my maker. Um, and so with that, I, I, I had, I saw a character that had um, a new lease on life. You know, the cell door had been opened after you've been told you're going to spend um, life in prison and uh, you know, you're free. So there's, there's a, an aspect where he's just trying to really suck every drop of satisfaction out of life as it can before time's up. So 
um, for all the stuff on page that, you know, he's a terrible person. He's really loving every second. And obviously there's the dynamic between the Corinthian and dream played by Tom Sturridge as well. And there's that moment right at the beginning where, you know, Tom Sturridge is kind of trying to take that away from him. And then he ends up locked away for a hundred years. So he he gets this buy of extra time, um, you know, but it's very much the two, the two of you circling each other, but not in the same physical space. And so how did you think about the way that you wanted to manifest that dynamic, even though it's not about the two of you being on screen together for most of the season? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I do know that I'm a real uh, thorn in his side, and it creates um, a, 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 a certain sense of urgency um, that, you know, at any time this could happen. So uh, I knew that I knew that Morpheus was uh, was always sort of looming somehow, and really. It's, again, really clever, great writing of how we just bottleneck at the end. It's just building that anticipation of when these two will, will finally meet and what will happen. So, uh, yeah, I tried, tried to give Thomas space, um, and that was pretty easy because we were all basically in hazmat suits shooting this during the pandemic. I also wanted to ask you a little bit about Terry Knickerbocker because I've heard you mention Terry as an acting coach that that you've worked with and, you know, was interested if you were working with Terry on The Sandman and Vengeance and and if so, what were the aspects of character that working with an acting coach even at this point in your career really helped to bring out for you? Yeah, I worked with Terry on every single project. I don't see it as um, I need help with acting. I I, I see it as acting is a two-way street. I, I need literally another person to to uh, to act with. It's a team sport. So um, having that a person like Terry, who's just a library of all plays, everything, and, and runs a studio and, and sees work from beginning to you know, all the other great actors that he works with. Um, yeah, we have a we have just a real deep friendship. Uh, he's a mentor to me. Um, I can always try out things and get his perspective, be able to work it out rather than working with a stranger or um, you know rehearsing in my bedroom and then getting to set and not having the experience of what another person will bring to the table. Um, so we work together on everything. I will continue to do that. Um, you know, I, I take our, our sessions and, um, you know, I, I pop them in my earphones and I do everything while I'm listening to these. Uh, so it becomes, again, that really second nature thing um, because, you know, rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Uh, just keep, keep doing it. Um, yeah, Terry's fantastic. I've worked with him for a long time, and uh, I, he always brings something I've, I've never thought about uh, to our sessions. 
Yeah, that's amazing. And and in talking about the movie Vengeance as well, you know, you were mentioning with the Sandman how the voice of a character is is kind of the initial thing that you start to develop. And so similarly for Vengeance, was was that where you started out with building out this character? Because obviously it's a very different type of, of vocal delivery. It's a much more warm and open character than playing the Corinthian. <laughs> Which was a relief uh, to, to drop that and to be just somebody who was a big hearted person and super impulsive to his detriment, probably sometimes. But yeah, he's from West Texas. So that's a very different type of uh, uh, atomic person who, who behaves really different from, from someone like the Corinthian. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I always, I, I say this, I, I think it takes a village to produce a film or even the character. So um, I love working with voice coaches. I work with uh, a guy named Gary Grinnell uh, out of Ireland, um, who's done just great work. And it's, it's, again, someone to have a sounding board against rather than going down some rabbit hole and maybe going off in a wrong direction and then getting to set and you've, you've really gone the wrong way. So just having perspective and uh, because at the end of the day, I have to get up and do this. Um, I have, it has to be mine. So it's, so it's always going to be mine, but to have, you know, people around you that can support you and also, um, you know, break things down with software and uh, get phonetic notes for your script you know that stuff for me is just like the fundamentals that every time i can always go back to those fundamentals and then the film itself will, will, will take on its, its its life i really love that and you know also with this character as well he's he's very fluid with his with his body language you know he's a much kind of looser character as well um and so again in kind of finding that physicality and finding the movement of the character what were the important aspects of of his mannerisms or just that being very comfortable and very tactile with people that you wanted to bring to him yeah he's just an expressive person so physically i wanted him to to just wear his heart on his sleeve and in comparison to someone like the Corinthian, there's there's a more refined coldness to that. So there's just like in physics, you know, warmth expands things and coldness draws things in. I, I really just try to keep it simple, stupid sometimes, and, and just apply the necessities. And they're both characters that in different ways are very charming. You know, the the Corinthian, like you said, is someone that kind of wants you to lure you into, you've already invited them into your home before you realize that you shouldn't have. And, you know, then with, with Ty and Vengeance, it's this like just immediate warmth and openness. And he's so charming and engaging because of that. Um, and so how did you approach that kind of charisma that you wanted to bring to two very different characters in very different ways? That's, I just realized that I've welcomed um, BJ's character Ben into our home, and it was too late before he knew it as well. <laughs> but in a totally different scenario, um, yeah, um, each each is each is different. But you know, Ty has got a very um, strong sense of something that's happened to his sister, 
and he almost views Ben as this unicorn that's from a place where it breeds uh, intelligent people that must be able to find out what's happened. Um, and the really great thing about the writing in, in Vengeance is that it takes these idiosyncrasies that that will you think will be uh, a cliche of someone from the South that, you know, or country hazies or something like that. And it turns out it's actually those people who teach Ben something. So um, it's just a really different variety uh, between the two, but they were both, both had a certain amount of uh, charm, but I think that's just who Ty is. He's, he's, he's not, in the Corinthian is very manipulative and, and very uh, conscious of doing that. And Ty is just unconscious, obliviously uh, a loving, warm person. I also like the fact that with Ty, you very intentionally, you know, you didn't want to play him as kind of this very macho character, kind of a patriarchal figure of the family, you know, and there, there is a moment where we see him hit someone, but it's, we really understand the emotion of where that came from. And so how did you find that really delicate balance of, of playing someone that, you know, isn't afraid to kind of stand up for things and, and can be pushed to that place, but that that's not the core of who they are within their everyday life, because it's interesting to see both of those elements coexist. Yeah, again, it started out, um, but it wasn't in the end. Um, starting out, um, you know, more of a character of someone down there who must be rough and tough because they, have, uh, you know, they live out in the middle of nowhere and they're Texas and, and all that. And then through the writing, you just start analyzing and seeing that this is a person who just wants the best for everybody. And so the two don't really go together. Um, and so it was more of a physicality thing in the beginning with a, a stronger dialect and the rehearsal with BJ and stuff like that, trying to stay in uh, like a very strong West Texas accent didn't really lend itself to the comedy because um, I think what I initially started out doing was a bit more heavier and it just didn't work for the, for the, the lightness and the comedy and the timing. So you have to, you have to fail to figure this stuff out. Which, yeah. I'm getting pretty uh, good for that. <laughs> and in terms of the comedy as well, BJ Novak actually gave you a book at the beginning, which was like <laughs> truth and comedy, I think. Um, and, and it sounds like a lot of that stemmed conversations about, you know, having this very grounded comedy where you're not playing it for the jokes. And I know that comedy is a space that you've worked in a little bit less throughout your, your career and is something that you've been really keen to kind of dip your toes into further. And so what was that, that journey and exploration of kind of stepping into it in, in that sort of space, finding these very grounded, intimate character moments to bring forth the elements of comedy with someone like BJ Novak, who you also had a pre-existing, you know, dynamic with from him directing an episode of The Premise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, BJ is um, wildly talented um, and I'm so happy to work with him early because he is going to go and do some, some great things. Uh, he gave me that book because I just think he's really smart in, in knowing that 
you know, there's a pressure to be funny or, uh, you know, you've got to make that happen yourself. And really that's a, a trap. That's um, something that he was kind of foreseeing for, for me or for that he's seen in the past. Uh, so that book really just helps you and puts you at ease because it's, uh, you know, it's from the guys from Second City and uh, all those people, you know, Chris Farley and all those, those people that came out, those people who studied it. Um, but for an example would be, um, there's a joke in the truck about a movie that he is, that I recognize him from. And it's, it's like laugh out loud funny on the page. But, so you know it's funny, but then playing in the scene, it wasn't really working because I was so aware that it was funny and it was a joke, but that's, that's not the joke. The joke is that it, I genuinely think that, and that's why it's funny. And so we had to find the, like the timing and, and the, the pouncing and the punctuation for it to, oh, that's what it is. You know, and but it derives from a place that's just a genuine statement rather than, um, oh, this is going to be funny if I say that. Well, these are both such fantastic projects. And I think just a continued example of how with every project you always find to manage to find such new spaces to explore as an actor for audiences. So thank you so much for talking about both of these. Really appreciate it, Boyd. Thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure.